woman's ordination is a question today. It's never been a question before. 1975, mm. the very first ever in the history of the church woman's ordination conference. I was there. That's how old I am. <laughs> it was a radical new idea that was explosive. This is Expanding Horizons. Candid conversations, passionate people, important issues. Produced by the Jesuit Institute, South Africa. Sister Judy Coyle is a sister of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. She has been lecturing at St. Augustine College for almost 13 years. And previous to that, she taught at St. Joseph's Theological Institute at Sadara in KwaZulu-Natal for 19 years. She lectures primarily in the areas of spirituality and liturgy. I am Russell Pollitt, and this is Expanding Horizons. Judy, thank you very much for coming in and talking to us. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, where you grew up, your family, your interests, your hobbies. Well, I'm, as you can tell from my accent, I'm from America. I haven't lost that accent after all these years here. But I grew up in the Midwest, uh, raised in a Catholic family and um, educated in Catholic schools and entered religious community after graduation from high school and worked in the States for a few years in schools. Many of our schools were closed, so we became pastoral ministers in parishes. I did that for about 13 years and then was invited by my community and also by the Redemptorist here in South Africa to come and to minister with them here in South Africa. So that was 1985. So you've been <laughs> here for a long time. I've been here for a long time. <laughs> and primarily you've taught liturgy in the places that you've been. Certainly at Sadara, that was one of the main things that you did. Yes, liturgy it was my master's study, and it's my first love. I kind of skewed into uh, spirituality toward the end of my time at Sadara. And now at St. Augustine's, it is primarily in spirituality that I lecture and direct studies and so on. Mm-hmm. I want to talk to you about liturgy because that that is your interest. And that's also, at the moment, a very hot debate, especially roles in the liturgy and specifically focusing on the question of deacons and deaconesses. We recently heard that Pope Francis, two years ago, asked for an investigation into the question of women deacons. But first of all, just the diaconate, a little bit about the history of the diaconate, how it came about. We know from the Acts of the Apostles that deacons were first appointed there. But what we have today is a very different kind of deacon to what we see in the scriptures. Yes, the ministry of deacons, as you said, is in the Acts of the Apostles. And in that situation, the seven who were named were all from the community. They were all Greek-speaking deacons. Whether or not that rule was extended to women, there are instances in the scriptures where we do have women acknowledged as deacons. Phoebe, in the letters of Paul, Mm. was called by Paul a deacon and had a very significant ministry, it seems. We also have in the letter of Timothy instructions to deacons where he's instructing the deacons on what they should do. And in the middle of the instruction, in terms of men, he addresses women. And then he continues with men. He wasn't addressing just women generally. The presumption is that he was addressing women as deacons. So the role of, in terms of the diaconate for women, has played out through centuries, primarily, I would say, in the Eastern Church. Mm. And there's all kinds of historical evidence, and many studies have been done on that. But the role itself, even in the Roman tradition, really ceased at one point because everything was assumed into the priesthood. Mm. 
the diaconate itself was only a transitional thing to become a priest. Vatican II restored the permanent diaconate, where a person can be ordained only as a deacon, not on the way to priesthood. And that's where the argument today in terms of women deacons is situated, in the possibility of being ordained to a permanent diaconate apart from priesthood, which has much more significant problems. So the study that was commissioned by Pope Francis was to really look into this, because even when the question was raised at Vatican II, someone said, well, what about women? Mm. But it didn't get very far. So he's initiating in asking for that study. He's saying, what has the scholarship shown? What have the studies shown in terms of this possibility today? I want to back up a little bit, just in terms of the diaconate. Mm -hmm. In the early church, we saw a diaconate that was primarily at the service of widows and orphans. Since Vatican II, this has become much more a liturgical function per se. And many deacons perhaps are not involved in the same kind of service. So the diaconate itself seems to have evolved or changed, or maybe we have not really yet got back to its roots from the period of Vatican II, as the church attempted to do. Yeah. Yes, the question of what is the contemporary role of deacons in the church is a question. Mm. There's a lot of writing and discussion about that. What are they really supposed to do? I think for centuries that role was fulfilled by women religious mm. <laughs> in what they did in terms of ministering to the sick, to the poor, to the ignorant, to all of the variety of ministries that women religious have been engaged in, and brothers as well, with the exception, of course, of any liturgical role. So the reinstitution of it may often be seen only in terms of its liturgical functioning. That's where the deacon is visible and prominent. But in terms of its other functions, I think there's a variety. And I don't know that it's clearly defined. I'm not sure it needs to be real clearly defined. Deacons find different ministries or are engaged in different ministries. Mm. So it's kind of a fluid situation in terms of the role itself. But how that will play out in terms of women is a question. Uh, You're kind of saying that if you want to see the ministry of the deacon, look at what religious women and religious brothers are doing. Well, perhaps I (laughs) As I said, said, through the history, in terms of service to Mm, the community mm. and to the church, we see that most perhaps dramatically, perhaps also because those were the only sources, in a sense, that we have in terms of what the role and the function of women was in the church, mm. uh, apart from clergy, apart from the clerical role. And many times as well, there's this confusion. I mean, some people don't see married deacons, permanent deacons, as clergy per se. This is yeah. an interesting misunderstanding as well, and often a misunderstanding of the clergy priests themselves. Mm-hmm. Yes, they are in orders, Hmm. the first level, if you will, of holy orders. So there really isn't a question how they're perceived or how they function is a deeper question, but I don't think you can argue that they are not. And that's part of the question, I think, relative today to women deacons in terms of, is this a sacrament of orders? And if we have women, should we have some kind of lesser thing that isn't sacramental, Mm. like deaconettes, someone said. But it seems to me, as I read it and as I, from those who have written about it, that it was a sacramental ordination Mm. into orders. I mean, and the thing is, in the church right now, only those in orders have, uh, what, jurisdiction or Mm. authority. They can delegate that, perhaps, but ultimately, they're the ones with that. Whether or not you want to give such jurisdiction... I'm not sure I'm using the right term canonically here, 
to deacons as people who are in orders is perhaps a part of the reason why that is still not real clear in the present investigations. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. This highlights, of course, another issue as well, and that's the relationship between the laity and also the clergy. In many ways, the clerical state is given a higher status in Mm -hmm. the church than lay people. So it's important, it seems to me, to see this as well within that context, the relationship between lay and clergy. Yes, I think some of the kind of desire today or agitation, if you will, or something in terms of women attaining to some kind of clerical state might not be such a critical question if, in fact, the place of the laity or the function or the authority, if you will, of the laity within the church is more clearly incorporated (laughs) or defined or recognized so that everyone, that women who want to be a part of the church and decision-making and ministry and so on, don't have to see themselves only as in in terms of clerical life. I don't know, that's a big, much, much broader question, Mm -hmm. but it could situate this argument in terms of that broader question. Mm. There are serious questions that we as a church need to face. I mean, the question of woman is simply just one of them. And if one looks, for example, in most of our parishes, if one looks at the church across the globe, this is not just South Africa. It is women who day to day are really keeping things going. They are the ones very often that are taking children to mass. They're the ones getting children involved in the church, while in some places even the men don't even enter the church to mass. They're standing outside talking. I mean, this question of woman in the church is one that we have not properly grappled with. And it seems as if we're getting to a point where actually it's becoming more and more urgent Yes, I mean in the I mean in the beginning in the foundation the relationship of Jesus to women and the scriptural accounts of his interaction with women was beyond <laughs> the expectation. Mm. I mean it was exceptional. It was revolutionary, you might say. It was radical. How that through history and it continued in the early church for a while, but eventually the kind of cultural and the kind of patriarchal culture and the necessity of norms overtook that radicalness. It is only really in the past century or so when you have the whole feminist movement that you're beginning to begin to look at women differently. Recently, I read something that they said the church really doesn't yet know how to talk about women. Mm. For centuries, it wasn't necessary. Mm. Women were either mothers or they were religious, and that was it. Mm. But women as women, as individual persons, as recognized Christian believers, there wasn't a need. In fact, some of the saints in the early church, significant saints, had terrible descriptions of women, what they were, the misbegotten males mm-hmm. of Thomas Aquinas' fame. So it's only recently that the church, in its more official documents and pronouncements and writings and so on, has had to really grapple with who are these people who make up more than half of this baptized community? What can we say about them? So it's a contemporary dilemma, we might say. Women maybe see beyond or have already ways in which these things can be expressed, but it's still not, uh, it's a new phenomenon in this whole idea of the complementarity of Mm. men and women One writer says that word has never appeared in the Catholic lexicon Mm. before a very recent time. So it's how are we going to understand or appropriate (laughs) women into this larger community in a way that acknowledges who they are as women and isn't just a second-class 
relationship or a second-class citizenship, you might say, in the, in the church. So you point to something quite important, which I think we should touch on as well, and that is our theology and our ecclesiology is not stuck. It is continually mm. developing. It's dynamic. Very often people talk about tradition. They think it means mm. that things can't change. Whereas if one looks at this issue, mm. for example, as we have developed, as science develops, as movements like the feminist movement start to speak, it seems to me that our theology should be dynamic. And this is going to mean that we are also going to have to look at the way we've been thinking as a church. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that's a core thing our theology develops because we develop our mm. own human life and understanding and all of the ways in which through science, especially in our own time and psychology and all of the world around us has brought us to new awareness and new understanding that has to impact our theological presupposition. Even the development, the ongoingness of it. At one time, we said there was no objection to slavery. Hmm. Usury was forbidden. Hmm. (laughs) So we've had to, the spirit is at work in the church, but the spirit is also at work in the world. And in the theological attempts to kind of try and express that, we are seeking to do it in a way that acknowledges the growth and development. Tradition means traditio, passing on, passing on, developing. I think that's one of the things Francis said in regard to even this question of women. We have to continue developing. We have to continue to examine and see. We have to enlarge. The tradition has to be enlarged. Francis called this investigation two years ago. Let's look specifically at the question of the role of woman in ministry. Mm -hmm. And he did this because I think more and more the many things you said are coming to the fore. So, for example, at the end of the Synod for Young People last Mm -hmm. year on faith and vocational discernment, in the final document, there was a very strong paragraph about the role of woman. And in actual fact, if I remember correctly, it was even said that we can no longer delay not discussing the role of woman in the church mm-hmm. and that not to include woman in the decision-making processes of the church is an injustice. That's mm-hmm. the word that is used. Mm-hmm. Now, in the apostolic exhortation that followed, a lot of these things sort of lost their strength, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Mm-hmm. If we want to talk about woman in ministry, does it have to be an ordained ministry? Certainly, women have been ministering in the church uh, since its foundation, (laughs) since Mm. its beginning, and they're not stopping, although some have. I mean, some have left because they are so upset with things that are going on in the church. What it is in terms of control or whether it's in terms of an understanding of women, who they are, I mean, again, historically, this all kinds of association of women with evil and Eve ate the apple and it's her fault that we're where we're at. Jesus chose you know, Jesus chose men and not women is an argument one often hears. The church has got yeah. no authority to change that. Well, the choice of the 12, again, is uh, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles in that context, in that situation, that's a symbolic choice. And there is an apostolic ministry in the church. I do believe that. I think that's one of the pillars of who we are as church, which has continued. But apostolic and hierarchical are perhaps two different understandings or two different terminologies that we use there. But whether it's who women are in terms of their person, in terms of their sex, 
whether or not that's an underlying dimension or something or fear or whether it's a matter of control, it's a deeper question than I probably could do justice to right now. Mm-hmm. In the contemporary church in which we live, mm-hmm. if you do not have power in the hierarchy, in a way, well, the perception is your voice is mute. Yes, yes. Yeah. And so therefore, if only men have got control or only men are in the hierarchy, it's natural that women's voices are mute. I wouldn't disagree. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's, of course, is part of the argument. You know, people reject this thing of women as deacons because they say it's a slippery slope hmm. to the ordination of women. Hmm. And the argument for women deacons is precisely to say, no, it isn't. It, it exists in its own right. But in fact, I suspect it is a slippery slope. The permanent diaconate has not been a slippery slope into the ordination of of married men. No, no. But I mean the very possibility of women in a functioning public ordained role may begin to stir the possibility that that role can be broader than only that of the diaconate. I don't want to harm the arguments in favor of that, mm. but I'm saying that the possibility of it may lead to other broadening the expanding the tradition, enlarging the tradition. The study that Pope Francis asked has has continued for two years. Yeah. There seems to have been some division on the issue, and women themselves seem to be divided if one looks at what various voices are saying in the church. At one stage, it seemed quite positive that there would be a moving forward. Recently, the Pope himself said, well, this matter is inconclusive. You've been following that study. What are your thoughts about what's come out there? Initially, when I heard, I mean, it was the Women Religious, the international organization of major superiors of women religious who requested this. Mm. And he said he would do it, and he has done it. And he gave them the report. I haven't seen the report. And when I heard of the results, I was disappointed. (laughs) Because to me, in my own study and so on, it seems the arguments are so strong for it, I'm not sure how they can be disregarded. However, I then read a response by Phyllis Zagano, who is Mm. probably the primary person who's advocating this, who's done the study, the scholarship, and so on. And she said she's completely at peace with what Francis has said. She thinks he is trying to really force the argument, maybe open the argument up broader to the broader church to challenge the bishops, she said. And she said he sees a broader picture. I mean, we are in a universal global church and the considerations, I mean, we come the kind of Western scholarship, if you will, European, American, which would say this is obviously the next step, may not be so obvious in other places in the world. So that's a kind of another consideration. But he didn't completely close the possibility. He said perhaps this group would be reconvened. He said their studies must continue. And Zagano herself said, I must continue to publish because she has done the work and has published that to make the argument. Things have to resonate with, as we say, with a church Catholic. Mm. It can't just be a kind of educated intellectual or elite group. It's got to be something that people all across the board in the church are at home with, we might say. I mean, there are times when people have to be challenged as well. But that challenge has to kind of resonate with who they see themselves to be, how they know themselves as church. I think the kind of ministry in the church and the possibility, people are becoming alert and aware of that Mm. and are even saying, especially in light of some of this abuse crisis, 
we need women to be mm. a part of decision-making, a part of training of those who are being ordained. There's certainly the advance of women in terms of scholarship in the church, biblical studies, theology, spirituality, pastoral ministry. I mean, they have done incredible work in raising some of these questions, whether or not that's there yet for the whole church or whether a kind of halt for now or a request to really broaden that base or that argument or that possibility is what is happening in the present study. Will happen or not is perhaps the challenge or is perhaps the question. So I said I was very disappointed at first, but after I read, I deliberately went to see what would Zagano say about this because she is the main promoter. <laughs> And she was quite all right. She says, Francis does see the bigger picture. He knows what he's doing. This is fine. We're going to continue. We're going to continue. Mm. Do you feel enough has been done in the local church to talk about these issues? So, for example, we need to be very aware that the context in which we are working, you in an academic institution, us here in an institute like this, in a way, these can become very silo conversations. Generally, out there, your sense of your ordinary families going to Mass on a Sunday, are these issues being put before people? Are people discussing them? I don't know if they're being put before them in any kind of significant way, but I think just the reality of the situation in the church today, especially with the whole issue of the abuse crisis, people are talking about these things, and they are engaging, Whether and, and sometimes from their own experience. If you gather women together in any community here and ask about their experience in terms of church, in terms of relationships with clergy, in terms of their understanding of church teaching, you will find people who are very much ready to <laughs> challenge some of these set ideas and some within the church, I think. Hmm. I don't know that the clergy is standing up in the pulpit and saying these are things we have to be concerned about, but I think perhaps on the ground, if allowed the space and the time to talk and to discuss, you will find people who do, who have had experiences that do challenge the church, that do want a different perspective or a different way or a different explanation or teaching or role themselves or position themselves. In some secular settings, when one talks about the way that women's issues have been advanced, whether it's in corporates or even if one looks at the South African government and, and more and more women are involved, in the church sometimes there's the sense that there's still a lot of fear in the men about women. Do you think clergy fear women? Do they fear women? Well, I suppose in some ways I would say I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, as you know, the, the particular training right now for clergy is so, as you say, kind of silo-oriented. I mean, there's a whole argument that says we've got to—the seminary training has got to be broadened beyond just a kind of monastic model where it is only men relating to men, being taught by men and so on, without any engagement with women, or very minimally, or without any study along with women, certainly that model has got to be broken open, if you will. There seems to be resistance to doing that, though. I mean, that's one of the things that surprises me if one starts to critique Francis. Mm -hmm. One of the things he has not done yeah. is look at the question of the formation of clergy and say, this is where perhaps we need to be concentrating. He's given many talks about clericalism, yes, about the dangers yes, of it. Yes. He has not joined the dots, it seems, back to the formation system to say, let me call for a complete reform of that. Well, again, how those things play out in various countries of the world 
varies as well. I know in some American situations, the bishop sends all of his candidates to other universities. It Mm. is not, the formation is not in a seminary system. Now, that's a bit radical, but it is possible. There's nothing against that. It doesn't have to be in this kind of form. How that would play out here, I'm not sure. I mean, Mm. I've been involved in seminary for a long time, Mm. so I wouldn't want to kind of predict and what Francis would do about it, I'm not sure. He himself was a rector Mm. at a seminary, and I mean, I think his key thing, as I read his own history, was really to get those seminarians involved with the people, Mm. to get them out of there, to get them with the people on their days off, on their teaching the young people, working in parishes and so on. His movement wasn't just in terms of women, but it was in terms of really working with the poor, for the poor, engaging with the poor, and living a very simple life within their their seminary situation. You make a very important point, though, about formation, because I think that if you train just men for six Mm -hmm. or seven or eight years with just men, and I think Massimo Fagioli, the church historian, highlights this, you don't land up with a situation where people can relate to each other as peers. Yes, yeah. Well, there's work to be done there. (laughs) Do women have to be ordained to play a meaningful role in the church? Well, I don't think so. I hope not. Mm. I mean, women have been playing very meaningful and significant and prophetic roles in the church for centuries. How that relates to questions of ordination is a question today. It's never been a question before. 1975, Mm. the very first ever in the history of the church, Women's Ordination Conference. I was there. That's how old I am. (laughs) It was a radical new idea that was explosive. Mm. And there were bishops at that meeting, actually. Mm. It was totally new. What has come about from that is, again, the movement, which, as you know, uh, two documents have been written to call a halt to that discussion. The discussion has not halted. And I'm sure it will be ongoing, but women still, I think, have played significant roles and continue to do so. Sometimes I have to say the desire to be priest arises from really a pastoral concern, Mm. desire to really be able to minister to people sacramentally, to preach. I think that's a key thing of women deacons. As a deacon, you can preach. You can say a word. Those who have suffered for generations (laughs) with preaching that is less than stirring may want to give it a bash. Mm. They may not do all that much better. On the other hand, we have to hear another voice. We've only heard one voice, one perspective. I think that's one of the key reasons for arguing for the possibility of women as deacons. They do preach. Certainly, lay people can preach as well, not under the present strict interpretation of the rules, but there's no reason why that rule couldn't also be broadened, that we might hear from others how the gospel challenges and relates to our lives. That's what it's ultimately about, preaching Mm. the gospel. Some people always throw up the question of John Paul II's ban on even talking about the ordination of women. That was specifically about the priesthood. Yes, yes. And he came out with that ban, and people say that cannot be changed. But there are other things in the church that have changed. Yes, yeah. It's an interesting dilemma. 
Well, you can't ban people from talking mm. <laughs> as much as you try or as much as you say this is our faith. The enlargement and the hope and the possibilities lead people to continue this conversation and to study it. And many studies have been done on almost on the head of that ban. Mm. We've got to begin to look at it broader than just this particular argument. Theological studies that look specifically at his theological arguments, a woman cannot image a male Jesus, all kinds of theological arguments in regard to that. So the kind of in some ways almost the ban has caused a further development and significant engagement with the tradition to address that or to engage with it or to say, here's some other perspectives on that or other possibilities that have to be considered today, given our own awareness of the place of women in society that cannot just be constrained to what previous centuries have held. The question of preaching is a very interesting one, because <laughs> it was the woman, really, who proclaimed the resurrection. Yeah, yes, yeah. Mary Magdalene, the apostle to the apostles. apostles. Yes, yes. Yeah. was the first one who actually stood up and proclaimed yes. the resurrection or went off to go and tell them what she had found. It was woman who proclaimed the resurrection first. Mm -hmm. Well, again, like I say, the kind of study and engagement that has brought forth that awareness today, mm. most of the preaching about Mary Magdalene until now has been her sinful prostitution. <laughs> mm. Which has got no historical no, basis. No, no, no. Mm. None whatsoever. But it is precisely because women scholars have looked again at those scriptures and they've said, wait a minute, what have we been hearing? What really is there that's part of the reconstruction of the tradition that will show us there's another reality operating here, another possibility that we aren't seeing We've got to quit looking through one lens. We've got to look with both eyes now. Very often we hear, and Pope Francis has done this, the speak of the feminine genius and that the church's mother. Can we unpack that a little bit? Well, the um, that kind of language puts women in a kind of position or pedestal where you, in a way, you don't have to engage with them. Hmm. You can just keep them on the pedestal, and then there they are, and we must protect them. And rather than have any kind of normal human interaction with them, there was a very interesting kind of comment once by no less than Thomas Merton. He says, women religious especially, they're always saying that they have a feminine mystique, and we must protect and guard this feminine mystique. And he says if people engage with women, they would realize there's no mystery about them at all. <laughs> mm. We have to get over this idea that they're a kind of endangered species, we might mm. say, or, or protected species. And so we have to keep them on the pedestal. This was the thing even with some of the kind of glorifications, if you will, of Mary. Elizabeth Johnson in her book, Truly Our Sister, mm. really deals with this significantly. She says we've made Mary beyond the reach, mm. <laughs> really, of ordinary women. And uh, in terms of who she really was and what the scriptures say about her, we've got to appropriate, if you will, a much more human and a much more real picture of who Mary was and what her role and function, which we don't minimize, but we can't identify with her in that way. We can identify with her as mother, as human, as woman, as truly our sister, hmm. which she titles her work. So the demystifying, if you will, 
of women isn't to throw them on the rag heap, (laughs) but it is to say that to engage in a kind of mutuality with women is the way forward. You can't use that argument to forestall a more significant role or a more significant engagement. Mm. People like yourself are working in the church and in many ways, I guess, very patient with what sometimes feels like a very slow process in trying to articulate more clearly the position, the role, the ministry of women, especially in relation to being ordained. There are some women who have chosen to leave the Mm -hmm. church and to be ordained in movements like the Roman Catholic Woman Priests Movement. Your thoughts on that, because I think that's quite important, and I think that for them, perhaps the waiting for something to shift or change, or maybe even the sense that nothing's going to shift or change, has led them to seek ministry in a formal way in other places. Yes, that's a a difficult question, and... um, I think women should be ordained in the church, but they should be ordained in the church, by the church, and for the church. In the Roman Catholic women's priest movement, that's not the situation. Now, you may say, well, what's the church? (laughs) Which is another question, but there are definitions and boundaries of identification of who we are as church. So that kind of movement, I suppose, in some ways could be considered prophetic. It is saying we can do this and we will do this or you should be doing this. And people who are involved in it all testify significantly to a personal call or a personal vocation or a right as a woman in the church to be ordained. I don't know that ordination is a right. It should certainly, as I said, be allowed, but within the confines of the church. I don't know how significant such a movement will be. It could be that it is seen as a threat. I don't know. Ultimately, I mean, I think they say their ultimate thing is that when the church finally ordains women, we will just automatically be there and be ready. But I don't know that it will play out in that particular way. So most recently, there has been a publication of a book by Yves Congar, which he wrote in 1948, (laughs) revised in 1968, but only recently available in an English translation where he talked about four norms for reform in the church. True reform in the church has to come about because of, first of all, charity and pastoral concerns. True reform has to come about in communion with the church. And I think that's what Phyllis Zagano was saying. We want this reform, but it's got to come about with everyone. We have to have patience with reforms. Patients can be exhausted and there can be a need to address a situation. We can't wait in terms of the abuse crisis, for example, to say, well, we'll wait till we've got to take action in some instances. The situation is a crisis and needs to be addressed. But generally, the longer term, the longer position, the longer view for those who have really sought reform has played out. I think that's what Francis is trying to do. He's trying to convert people. He's not trying to write a new law for the most part. And renewal also just through the real principles of the tradition, deepening the tradition. I think women religious, for example, the tradition of their vows has been completely, in some regards, reinterpreted in the present era. What was understood as poverty a hundred years ago in those communities today has a very different understanding. Obedience as well. Mother said this, we do this, no questions. Today, all kinds of engagements in terms of obedience, for example. So the tradition is still there, but it has to be 
appropriated with the contemporary insights and knowledge and awakening of the spirit in those who are engaged today in the actual work, in the actual ministry, in passing on the tradition. And I think there have been advances, even in the church, for women. I mean, this whole putting women now in the theological commission is an advance. All of the different places where women do have positions of authority in dioceses locally, like I say, this plays out differently in other places in the world, depending also on the place of women in that society. So I think patience with the reforms, with the women doing the work and showing the tradition, enlarging the tradition, challenging the tradition in ways that are significant. They have been doing that for the past 50 years, 60 years in the church, and it has shown some growth and some development. It's got to continue. It's got to mature. How young women continue that work, I'm beyond that mm-hmm. <laughs> in some ways. But hopefully that next generation will presume a different place, will begin also to significantly impact and influence the church and ministry in the church. You're hopeful about the future. You seem to be hopeful about this new movement. You're hopeful about what Francis has asked the church to do. You think they're moving in the right direction? Well, I think ultimately I have to believe that they are. You do get frustrated with some things and you get very impatient with some things. But I think ultimately you can't stop this movement if it is from the spirit. It's going to continue. It's going to flourish. I'm especially encouraged sometimes when you do see young people who are broadcasting or who are working with different agencies or who are involved in questions of church or in We Are Church or in the Women's Ordination Conference movement or Future Church, because that is the future. And they are working also out of the scriptures. They're working out of the tradition. They're not kind of denying that, but they're bringing that, furthering that, hopefully, for the next generation still to come. Sister Judy Coyle, thank you very much for your time and for your reflections on what I think is going to be a very important dialogue and will certainly continue within the church, not just here, but also the global church. Please comment and subscribe to our podcast for more candid conversations, passionate people and important issues. Expanding Horizons is produced by the Jesuit Institute South Africa with music and sound by Francis Tucson. This episode was presented by Russell Pollitt. Visit us at www.jesuitinstitute.org.za.